You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining us here for AOA. Today, we are no doubt going to talk about what is developing here in the commodity markets. Tommy Grizzafi of Advanced Trading will be joining us in just a moment. In segment two, we're going to dig into the EPA's RFS data, particularly on the renewable diesel side. Economist with the American Soybean Association, Scott Girl, will join us. We'll take a look at that industry as we plan now for the future. And in segment three, we're going to take a look at the future as well with Denise Bouvret. She is in charge of Smart Corn with Bayer recently received approval from the USDA on their genetically modified short stature corn. We're going to talk about where Bayer thinks this corn industry is headed and why they're they're betting on this short stature crop. Before we dive into all of that, let's talk about what is moving here in the markets. And after a long bull market moving up, now we're seeing things move to the downside a little bit. Soybeans off substantially on the day. Corn down a little bit. Wheat, the only market that's finding a little green. Tommy Grizzafi of Advanced Trading joins us now. And Tommy, are we just a little overbought here in this market and we're correcting or is this something more fundamental? Uh, if you were trying to walk up that chart, you'd, you'd need help. There's that, that was a steep, steep incline and uh, you know, it's not sustainable, but if you're one of those people who was short that market, at some point you have to, uh, you do have to acknowledge we are having a drought. I mean, it was, it's going to rain. There's rain in the forecast. It's towards the end of June. It's, it's not as hot. It's not 100 degree hot in the Midwest. You could have a really bad drought with 82 degree highs if it doesn't rain for two months straight. And Tommy, these weather forecasts, I mean, I'm not seeing any rain, at least for Illinois in the near future. No, right where I sit with you today, we are at ground zero. And you could see it just looking out the window. If someone has a sprinkler system, lawns look good. If they don't, uh, you're like, why aren't you? What's wrong with your lawn? Well, it's, that's a drought. That's what it looks like. And uh, that crop's getting ready here in the next three to four weeks to just, it wants to consume an incredible amount of moisture. And it's just not out there, Mike. It's not, Tommy. It's not. And yet we're seeing these markets back off a little bit. We got corn off a nickel. We're looking at 620 here in the December. Is this a time, Tommy, that you want to be selling any cash? Or do you just want to look at the options or nothing? Are you sitting? All, all great uh, choices and discussions. There's the haves and have nots. If you really feel like you are producing bushels and you don't have storage, a cash sale is definitely warranted at this uh, price. If you want to own it back at the board, I mean, if you're these folks on the outside, and there's we work with clients all over America, there are people growing big crops this year. There's people, Colorado, Kansas, Oklahoma, out west, let's just call it out west. There's people out there who have received more rain in the last month than they did the prior two years. They have to acknowledge that blessing and market that grain. They're, there's not enough storage to go around for all the bushels on the east and west uh, side of the United States. But if you're in central Illinois and you don't know that uh, what your crop looks like, you you probably have to hold off on those sales. You can still buy that put, buy that floor, buy that insurance, roll it up. But the uh, I am starting to actually feel, f feel and hear real fear in the farmer's voice in these I states. And they're not used to that, Mike. No, they're not. And so, Tommy, that's that's one of the concerns that I, I keep hearing bubbling up on social media. The I-State farmers, are they looking out and going, well, it's not 200 bushel corn, so I guess we throw in the towel? Or is it a substantial yield decrease that could be in the offing here? There, There's a really good chance that farmers who have been pushing 270, 250 consistently could be in the in in the 150s. And uh, th that we will not have a 181 national yield. And they're starting to be talked that we're starting to trade. If you said, and it's probably your next question, Tommy, what yield are we trading at? We're we're at about a 170, 172. That's what it feels like mathematically, the, the market's trading. But boy, we go through this weekend. Every weekend, is we call it at the board trade, like a 4th of July weekend. Well, we had a Juneteenth holiday. We're going to go on this weekend, and then we will experience 4th of July that crop is in need of water. It needs to start happening. Absolutely. Tommy, the other thing, I guess, taking a look at the, the fundamentals, we saw weird movements yesterday in the soy products market. Oil limit down, meal way up. Was this related to the EPA's announcement? Yeah, we want to thank our sponsors, the EPA, for uh, 
destroying whatever hopes we had of uh, using soybean oil and all types of oils for uh, aviation fuel and everything else. And, and, and maybe I'm being a little dramatic. We are still going to use those fuels. But folks in the uh, oil industry got a little taste of what it's like, what the ethanol has been dealing with, with the federal government for years. We've seen several boom-bust cycles of uh, ethanol. And it, it just seemed too good to be true when we were just talking six months ago that we'll need 12, 13, 14 million more acres of soybeans just to keep up with the demand. Looks like the government uh, caught on to that and world governments. Mike, you have to understand there's an election next year and you're not going to win any votes sending everyday working folks of all classes to the store paying record highs for food. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who are hurting. There's a lot of people also doing well, but high food prices are a tax on all people, especially the poor. They are, Tommy, and we continue to see high food prices, particularly in the meat case. It looks like the cattle market is back in rally mode here with this drop in corn. Can this be sustained longer term? Tommy, what are you watching at Live Cattle? Well, I had a friend yesterday who said, you know, the second that corn pulls off, we need to buy back those cattle. And uh, we're seeing some of that today in the feeders. The feeders are way off their highs. You have to understand the level we're trading at. We're trading at such an elevated level. We're we're not dollar fifty feeders. We're we're in the you know, middle twos, upper two, all types of crazy prices. And then that that's the board of trade CME group. When you actually hear the cash market, the cash market blows away these futures. So these are very elevated prices when it comes to the meats and uh, risk needs to be respected and managed. And Tommy, I mean, I just pulled up the deferred contracts here. We're priced all the way out through 24 in the mid 240s. Is this a time for those cow-calf producers to be making some sales in 2024? Well, it'd be great. And I, I'm a board of trade uh, futures and options guy. But if you pulled up the ladder of that ticket, the liquidity is uh, not very impressive. Yeah. You'll see a one lot bid, a one lot offered. So if you're a large cattleman rancher and you think you're going to go hedge, for multiple years, liquidity is a problem, especially if you get on the wrong side of it. I mean, look at the corn market, Mike. Look how deep and liquid the corn market is and how violent the move was. Cattle and hogs and everything are going to continue to experience volatility. Of course, we think volatility is opportunity, but it could also be an aggravation to someone. If they just want to produce tonnage, you know, they might not want all these volatile price swings, but the world's changed since COVID and everything else, and uh, we need to be uh, very disciplined in understanding what it looks like to our bottom line if the cattle market or feeders loses its bid. Okay, Tommy. That, you, you mentioned the in price of food and food inflation is a concern. Do you think the Fed comes back in with interest rate hikes here as the year goes on? Yeah, I think they do. And uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the, uh, the it's the Fed's tool to, uh, it hurts if you're trying to buy a home. It, it hurts a lot of people, but if we don't, inflation's a cancer. If you don't get it out of, in control, it will spread. It will, and it is a tax on everything, Tommy, as you have mentioned earlier. Folks, we've been talking today with Tommy Grizafi of Advanced Trading. Covers the country, talking to growers. Tommy, we appreciate just taking the time to talk with us and fill us in on what you're watching in these markets. Thank you for the opportunity, Mike. And folks, stick around. In the next segment, we're going to dive into those numbers that Tommy mentioned earlier from the EPA. They released their three-year outlook for the renewable fuel standard. And folks on the biodiesel side, feel that they have been shortchanged by the EPA. Scott Girl, the economist from the American Soybean Association, will join us and put a little context to those numbers here when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. In today's troubled world, our USA Armed Forces stand ready to protect you, your family, and our American way of life. When veterans return to civilian life, they deserve your recognition and support. You can help put vets to work by donating your car, truck, or van to Patriotic Hearts. Your donation will directly support programs to help vets find jobs or even start their own business. 
Donate today for fast, free pickup of your vehicle, running or not. Operators are standing by to answer questions about making a tax-deductible vehicle donation. Find out how you can make a difference in the life of a United States veteran. Call 800-209-6416 for 24-hour response. Call 800-209-6416. 800-209-6416. That's 800-209-6416. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve together, we can make a difference bite by bite. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues, and we are going to dive into the biofuel space in a little bit greater detail. We heard from Tommy Grazafi here just a moment about, about the movements in the soy products market yesterday. Both meal and oil were going wild, and as Tommy mentioned, a lot of that movement could be traced back to the EPA's announcement of their renewable fuel standard volume obligations for the next three years, where they took a good look at biodiesel. Joining us now to help put those numbers into context with this industry that has been growing like crazy is Dr. Scott Gerlt. He serves as the chief economist for the American Soybean Association. And Scott, thanks for joining us on AOA today. Well, great to be here, Mike. Thank you for having me. Let's dive into it first with the numbers from EPA yesterday. Scott, biodiesel proponents were hoping to see a growth in demand created from the EPA. They didn't get it. Where did EPA miss the mark, do you think? Yeah, they... They really um, set the numbers too low for the blending requirements. Um, we, we were happy to see that they had increased from what they proposed in December. At that point, they were uh, proposing about 200 million gallon increase uh, by 2025. Uh, the final numbers came out uh, closer to 600 million gallons. So that's a, a threefold increase from what's proposed, which you know, by itself is good, but when you're, whenever you're starting from a really low point, three times a low number is still a fairly low number. Um, and, and to put that in perspective, you know, we're talking about billions of gallons of growth in, in uh, renewable diesel um, in the sector. And so 600 million gallons over those three years um, only gets you partway there. And essentially without those blending levels and the RFS, um, a lot of those gallons really wouldn't have a home. Um, so it, it undercuts the need for a lot of the renewable fuels and uh, feedstocks to support those. Scott, I think that last comment you made is a key one, and I'd like to dive into it a little bit. You mentioned without the support uh, provided by the renewable fuel standard, many of these gallons just wouldn't exist. Can you talk about what the support is from the, the RFS that helps bring these gallons into production? Sure. The RFS uh, has mandates blending levels in the fuel supplies. They're called uh, RVOs, Renewable uh, uh, Volume Obligations. And, and so for diesel, um, it, it, it requires a certain amount of uh, blending, a certain percentage of blending. And 
uh, renewable diesel and biodiesel are are more expensive to produce than um, than petroleum-based diesel, but it's the greenhouse gas emission reductions that that are unpriced by the market um, that provide that value, and that's why we have the RFS. Um, so essentially, without those blending levels, um, the biofuels just can't compete on a price basis since the market doesn't price in those um, GHG reductions. Gotcha. It's that premium coming back through on the greenhouse gas emission reductions that pays for it. Scott, that makes a lot of sense. And with that being the case, of course, we've heard many, many announcements of of new soy crushing facilities across the country. Given this announcement from the EPA, does this put at least some of those facilities in jeopardy in your mind? Mike, I think it does. Um, so if you look at the increase in crush expansion and put that on a per bushel basis and and you convert the uh, RVOs to a per bushel of soybean basis, they're close. So if you took all the crush expansion, all the oil, went, extra soybean oil went towards these RVOs and nothing else did, it would, it would be close. We could almost take all that crush expansion. But that ignores all of the other uh, feedstocks. Uh, you know, we're, we're uh, importing more canola oil for renewable diesel since it has a pathway now. We've seen increases in imports of used cooking oil for the sector. Um, so you, it really ca calls into question, especially with uh, California's market, you know, uh, things like used cooking oil uh, tend to get a premium there. Um, so so I, I do think it, it's going to put pressure on some of those plants, especially the ones that haven't started construction. Um, there's a possibility that they, you know, the soybean oil that would come from them may not be needed for the renewable diesel expansion. Okay, Scott, I'm glad you highlighted that renewable diesel, of course, what when I think about it, I think of it as a growth of biodiesel and, of course, a huge demand mm -hmm. for soybeans. But as you mentioned, there are a lot of other feedstocks that can be used to create the end product. Do you know offhand what percentage of renewable diesel production is predominantly soy oil based right now? Or is that not something we keep track of in the industry? Uh, Mike, this may surprise you, but in 2022, it, it was on the order of like 15%. I don't remember the exact percentage off the top of my head. Uh, biodiesel is about 50%. So very different. And um, that is largely because renewable diesels go into California, uh, where, where they don't tend to uh, place the premium on it as some of the other feedstocks. Now, the expectation is that number grows as the sec as the market grows. Um, things like used cooking oil, um, uh, fats and greases, those supplies really can't ramp up to, to meet the growing demand. But uh, soybean oil, you know, we are ramping up. We're, we're building more crush facilities. Uh, and so the expectation is that that low number, that 15 percent, would, would grow quite a bit through time, um, assuming we have the expansion in the industry. That makes sense. There's only so much more additional used vegetable oil we can find, but it's fairly easy to put another acre of soybeans into the ground. And Scott, with with that being the case, as, as you look out here over the next couple of years, are you expecting to see the, the enthusiasm for renewable diesel subside, or is the demand from consumers such that even without the RFS, companies may find value in paying the premium? Um. I think renewable diesel is here to stay. I think it's just a matter of how much it grows. Um, and, and I think the limiting factor there is the RFS. Uh, you know, to, to this point or to this to date, we haven't seen consumers willing to pay more outside of um, the policy incentives that are there. Uh, you know, it'd be great if, if that changed. Um, and, and state policies are helping to support it, uh, but those are smaller than the federal policy. So until that changes, which appears to be quite a ways away, I think it's still the RFS at the federal level that's, that's going to be driving the level of growth. All right, Scott, that makes sense. I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. This is kind of a wild card. I'm not sure if you've got the data, but is there is there much of an export market or an export market potential for U.S. produced renewable diesel or biodiesel on the global market? Yeah, there there is some, Mike. Um, you know, unfortunately, that's hard to track. Um, that doesn't we don't. To get a little esoteric, we don't necessarily have some of the trade codes for that, um, so that data is hard to track. But yeah, we, we do know there are some renewable diesel being exported. Interesting. So we just we don't know the trade codes. So we don't know how to track where and when it's being recorded as as entering and exiting mm -hmm. the country. Is that the concern? Yeah, yeah, that is. Yeah. 
interesting. There's so much when it comes to global trade, Scott. And of course, your role as chief economist for the American Soybean Association, you keep an eye on global production trends here in the world of soybeans. And I'm curious, we're seeing that Brazil crop come out of the ground. And I'm wondering, based on your research, do those growers down in South America have incentive to continue increasing acreage as we look out to this next growing season for them down there? Yeah, all signs seem to be pointing to that. Um, you know, they've obviously done very, very well. Um, they're they, you know, very financially successful with the crop they have. If you look at USDA's um, foreign ag service, their their um, post in Brazil is estimating another four to five million acres increase next year on top of their record uh, acres they had this year in soy. So, so at this point, we're not really, I'm not really seeing much of a reason that Brazil would pull back much. Um, yeah, I think one of the challenges they have, uh, of course, is infrastructure, including lack of storage. If they keep having these record crops, I think at some point that's to change a little bit um, be because they have taken it on the nose a little bit as far as their basis uh, during this harvest period with such a large crop and the lack of ability to store it uh, for later export. Scott, as you think out potentially growing acreage, uh, soybean acreage down in Brazil, is there also a rural diesel market in, or excuse me, renewable diesel market in Brazil that could absorb some of those soybean acres, or are they are they just not in that competition? Yeah, so they they do produce biodiesel down there, um, and so th there's a little history here. So they had a 13% blending mandate in the country uh, a year or two ago. They dropped it to 10%. Um, they had inflationary concerns, so the government dropped it. But they've brought it back up to 12%. And over the next few years, they're going to take it up to 15% is what they've announced. So there is a market down there. Um, it has the potential to grow a little bit more over the next few years. You know, we just saw an announcement for a new crush plant also in Brazil. Um, so there's the potential for them to utilize some of some of the soy domestically. Um, now, I don't think that's going to necessarily change the trajectory of exports for them overall. Or it doesn't appear to you at this point. Um, but I think it could maybe slow some of the growth in their exports. Lots to watch there in South America. Lots to watch in North America as this big crop moves towards hopeful harvest here this fall. Scott Gerlt, Chief Economist for the American Soybean Association. Scott, you write quite a bit on the economics of the soybean industry. Where can our listeners go to keep up with your writings? Yeah, uh, soygrowers.org. Uh, we have a section there called The Economist Angle where you can find uh, my writings and um uh, feel free to sign up for our weekly newsletter that also includes it. Folks, keep up to speed on what is driving our markets that impacts your bottom line. Scott Gerlt, Chief Economist, American Soybean Association. Thanks again for joining us on AOA today. Thank you, Mike. Folks, stick around. We're going to turn the focus to corn, short stature corn with Bayer when AOA returns. Leave it here. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. At YMCA Summer Camp, kids find their why. Friendship and fun, a world of adventure beneath a golden sun. Running, laughing, full of wonder. Being themselves is second nature. Summer Camp is where they begin to unlock the confidence that lies within. When kids find new passions, they find their why. Summer camp season starts soon. Learn more at ymca.org for a better us. On the internet, there are tons of special networking websites, but one stands apart. This one saves lives. It's matchingdonors.com. Matchingdonors.com links organ donors with people in need of kidney and other transplants. Did you know in the U.S., 19 people die each day waiting for an organ transplant? If you've ever considered becoming a living organ donor, or if you're someone in need of an organ transplant, please visit matchingdonors.com. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Let's take a look at the grains and oil seeds on this Thursday. We were mostly lower in the overnight trade. Plenty of uh, hedge pressure, farmer selling, profit taking scene with the overnight trading session amid the recent rally in this grain and oil seed market with deteriorating crop conditions across much of the central corn belt. Weather models also showing greater chances for more substantial rain in the seven day forecast for the entire state of Iowa.
but Illinois and Indiana expected to stay very dry. We have some overbought technicals in these markets, especially in the soy complex, and we continue to see the soy complex trading sharply lower. Bean oil under pressure again with the new RFS mandates uh, disappointing many folks in the biofuels industry. We continue to see the soy complex under that heavy pressure through our Thursday action. However, corn and wheat rallying a little bit here off the overnight lows. So we're going to continue to watch those markets and see if they can again pick up the weather rally here once again. Wheat is the leader to the upside as we work through our mid-morning trade. It's going to be interesting to watch here uh, as we go through the weekend with the weather forecast. What are they going to look like? It feels like they continue to just say rains seven to ten days out and it keeps pushing those rains farther and farther back and saying that they're still seven to ten days out many areas getting very very dry across the central corn belt livestock trade taking advantage of a bit cheaper corn prices here so far on this thursday and soybeans as well for that matter cattle and hogs both trading to the upside moderately especially feeder cattle trade which is uh, getting a decent bounce here in recovery after getting pummeled on wednesday cash cattle activity mostly done in the south it appears for this week while the north still has some business to conduct hog trade is up just moderately here as we work through our session this is aoa for the american ag network i'm jesse allen Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and we're going to turn our focus over to corn. We're going to turn our focus over to corn science and development and really areas that I find fascinating but don't have necessarily the knowledge base to compete in. Well, we've got an expert here to fill us in. The reason we're going to talk about short stature corn was about two weeks ago, the USDA issued a determination that the Bayer genetically modified short stature corn may be safely grown here in the U.S. Cleared an important hurdle opens the door for some more. And I thought this would be a great time to check in with Bayer and see just what they're up to with their short stature corn program. Joining us today to fill us in is Denise Bouvret. She is the North American Smart Corn System Lead. She's been uh, with Bayer for more than 13 years. She spent a lot of that time in R&D. And uh, she's also been working on the commercial part of the business, launching these new products. Denise, thank you so much for joining us on AOA today. Thanks, Mike. Happy to be here. Let's dive in at the biggest possible picture. Denise, what is short stature corn from Bayer's perspective? How are you guys defining it? You know, Mike, I think the short stature corn is that next game-changing innovation for corn production. And the hybrids themselves are pretty cool in that they have a lot of inherent benefits, really around protection, so less lodging and green snap due to the stability of the shorter stature plant, access, being able to access that crop all season long with standard ground equipment to really have flexibility in how you manage that crop. And then yield potential, both through the optimization of that management of the crop and through the potential to push higher populations, even in standard uh, rows, um, due to the stability of that plant. So less risk in pushing those populations and the ability to get more yield on every acre. All right. So that's why we're working to bring the overall height of this crop down. And Denise, how tall would you like to see short corn be? What's the, the, the optimum? 
Yeah, so we're, we're targeting between five and seven feet. So no taller than seven feet so that you can still get that flexible in-season access with, with standard height uh, clearance uh, equipment, uh, but no shorter than five feet because uh, we really want to keep that ear height at about 24 inches or higher to, to ensure a successful harvest. So if I'm doing my math in my head correctly, realistically, we're, we're looking to bring one to two feet off the height of this corn plant, two to three feet? Yeah, of course, depending upon the where it's grown, uh, you can assume about a third shorter of what you're you're typically growing today is what you could expect with these shorter stature hybrids. Okay, a, th a third shorter. And Denise, I'd like to talk about how Bayer is looking to get to these short stature corn hybrids. There are several different tracks. We, we mentioned the GM track. Fill us in on that if you would. And what other avenues are you pursuing? Absolutely. So Bayer believes in this technology and truly thinks this is the next evolution of corn production. There are a lot of challenges our farmers face and this particular crop addresses a lot of those challenges and helps farmers reduce their risk while also increasing opportunities to drive better yields. So we are heavily investing in this space and we have been for more than a decade. We have multiple technologies in our pipeline to get to a shorter stature hybrid. The first to launch um, will be our breeding native trait uh, that doesn't require any regulatory approval. So we're stacking that with our commercially available traits right now and bringing that to market starting now this summer with our groundbreaker pilot trials on about 30,000 acres with almost 300 farmers. Our biotech trait or the GM trait that you mentioned at the beginning is our next technology. And this was a great and important hurdle through our uh, regulatory process and, and continuing to get global approvals uh, for this trait as we bring that forward, expecting to bring that technology forward in the US late this decade. But then we also have a gene editing version that's further uh, upstream in our pipeline in the discovery um, early phase one, where we're looking at another technology um, to bring this forward. Uh, and all three of those technologies are really, you know, this breeding trait allows us to uh, get out to the market quickly. Um, really set the stage uh, for this potential product concept in areas where GM is not necessarily uh, approved. This will be um, a great trait uh, to bring forward uh, and, and revolutionize corn production in those regions. For regions where the biotech um, is, is, is able, we're able to penetrate, uh, that will replace um, that breeding trait. And, and then we have an option with the gene editing uh, while regu global regulatory um, agencies have different uh, standards for regulating uh, gene edits versus GM. And so so we certainly are investing in this space because we, we believe it's the next evolution. Absolutely. I mean, that is a fascinating roadmap, Denise, looking out. So really, you've got it available, as you mentioned, 30,000 acres this year on the conventional side. But it sounds as though we should expect to be hearing short stature corn hybrid announcements for the next 15 to 20 years coming from Bayer with that roadmap in place. Absolutely. And a continued expansion um, to different genetics and, and diverse uh, genetics across maturities and really expanding into all of those areas where corn is grown. All right. Well, let's talk, if we can, about one of a farmer's favorite things to discuss when we've got new crop technologies, Denise, which is yield. This conventional variety that's out there today, can you fill us in on what the yield expectations are for these 300-some growers that are getting that crop in the ground this year? For sure. Well, our expectations for our short stature corn is that these products will yield very similarly to the products that farmers are planting today, uh, but that through uh, the management and, and thinking about uh, the potential and the risk reduction of these particular, uh, this particular product concept, growers will, will get incremental yield over time as we continue to mature this whole system approach with the short stature corn. And you think about that in a couple of ways. So you're reducing risk of yield loss due to lodging and green snap, even those partial losses. Uh, we all know about those devastating, you know, complete losses like the derecho storm of 2020. Um, I'm not going to tell you that the short stature corn is derecho proof. It isn't um, when, when trees and, and, and bins are folding and, and being uprooted. So does the short stature corn. But we do see an incredible resilience to wind with this technology. Um, certainly up to 50 to 60 miles per hour and even uh, 75 miles per hour in some trials uh, where we see this inherent standability. So even in the absence of those uh, devastating storms, you're still getting that protection from those partial yield losses and the down corn in, in parts of your field um, every year. You're also getting that opportunity to flexibly manage whatever the mother nature throws at you this year. So you've got flexible opportunities to get back into that field uh, 
with equipment you've got in your shed um, to be able to manage that crop to get the yields that you're you're looking for in that year. And that's a really powerful um, uh, capability of this product concept. You mentioned the inherent stability of this crop, and that's got me wondering if there are geographic regions of the U.S. that that you're targeting. I think the Dakotas that grapple with wind all summer long. Are you seeing exceptional advances there, or is the plan try it everywhere and and see what where it goes? We're certainly taking a targeted and focused approach right here in the in the heart of the Corn Belt, mid central Midwest um, area to start. Um, because that's where we've got, um, where our, our hybrids, the hybrids we have available right now have the best fit, um, but also because that's where we see uh, the most storms, yes. So I think um, certainly that's the biggest, most obvious benefit um, of this crop, and we want to bring relief to our farmers in those areas right now. Um, we'll continue to expand that out west um, as we as we generate um, um, hybrids that will have a good fit in those environments, um, as well as um, silage. You know, we see some incredible quality metrics with silage um, with these shorter stature hybrids that we're really excited about and some of our dairy farmers are super excited to try. That is interesting. We're chopping a lot less green material when you've got a five-foot stock versus a nine-foot stock. And Denise, I've got to imagine in creating that five-foot stock, there's also going to be less need for water, less need for nitrogen. Is there a consistent input reduction uh, that comes when you go with a short statured variety? We haven't seen that, Mike. Um, I think what we've seen is that the short stature hybrids are similar to your tall varieties in a lot of ways, and that they still use nitrogen the same way. They still need nitrogen at the same times um, and the same amount of nitrogen um, to be able to, 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 to deliver that yield. Uh, what you do see is we've seen a, a very robust root phenotype um, with these hybrids, which uh, could indicate that they may have increased tolerance to stress um, still more to come on that as we continue to evaluate more hybrids and more environments, but we're really impressed um, and we hypothesize that the that uh, those that deeper exploration of the roots really is happening at the time when your tall varieties are putting that energy into elongating the stalk. And so that energy has to go somewhere. We think it's going into the roots and, and still more to come on, on what benefits that could bring, but we're certainly keeping an eye on that as for accessibility to nutrients in the water table. Uh, that may give these plants an advantage. All right, Denise, I'd like to bring it back down, back down to the ground level and availability. You mentioned conventional going out this year. You've got your your, your trial farmers underway. When do you expect it to be available through uh, through regional distribution, the conventionally grown uh, varieties? Yeah, so we're still building that pipeline, um, as I mentioned. And so, you know, think about this as a almost a new crop, building shorter varieties. Um, of our portfolio. So it will take some time for that portfolio to mature and be available in all of the trait packages and all of the maturities um, to get that out into our farmers. But right now we're taking very much a partnership approach with our distribution partners um, and with our farmers uh, to bring this forward with some of our top, uh, our top partners and our top farmers to really pressure test um, and, and evaluate and characterize the system and, and get input from them to continue to shape what this system looks like and how we deliver that to um, to our farmers. We anticipate to expect about a 2x footprint um, of materials uh, of acres out in 2024 with these uh, targeted um, uh, partners and farmers. And then in 2025, we expect a broader scale launch. All right. So it is coming down the pipe. It sounds like in the next year or two, growers, if you're interested, you might have the chance to learn a little bit more, possibly see it in person. Denise, if we've got folks who want more information, where would you recommend they go to learn? Best place to go is your bear rep first, um, or you can go to beartraits.com and look for smartcornsystem.com. That's Denise Bouvret, the North American Smart Corn Lead with Bayer. Denise, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Mike. Pleasure to be here. Folks, stick around. We'll have more AOA coming up in just a moment when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans and if left untreated can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. 
The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to The Monthly Grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on The Monthly Grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. Why do you listen? I listen to radio to stay up on news, weather, current events around the local community. It keeps me up to date with everything going on in the world. It kind of just takes my mind off of the drive, getting some relevant information that's in time. It's always nice to know what's going on. Okay, what can I do? Well, listen to the what's coming up and you can plan your day. Why do you listen? Go to whyilisten.com, tell us why you listen, and you have a chance to win $500. Visit whyilisten.com today. The average American eats 250 eggs per year, which translates to a total annual consumption of 76.5 billion eggs in the U.S. About 60% of eggs produced here in the U.S. are used by consumers, and about 9% are used by the food service industry. A chef's hat is said to have a pleat for each of the many ways you can cook eggs. The color can range from white to deep brown. Hens with white feathers and earlobes lay white-shelled eggs, while hens with red feathers and earlobes lay brown-shelled eggs. Because breeds that lay brown eggs are typically slightly larger birds, they require more food, making brown eggs usually more expensive than white. You can tell whether an egg is fresh or stale by dropping it in water. A fresh egg will sink, but a stale one will float. Eggs also contain all the essential protein, minerals, and vitamins, and egg yolks are one of the few foods that naturally contain vitamin D. And eggs are also good for your eyes because they contain lutein, which helps prevent age-related cataracts and muscle degeneration. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Hi, I'm news correspondent Bob Woodruff. In 2006, a roadside bomb struck the armored vehicle I was riding in while reporting from Iraq. I sustained a life-threatening traumatic brain injury. The military term, got your six, means I have your back. And that day, our service members had mine. During my recovery, I learned firsthand the challenges facing our service members who return home with injuries. While serving, their fellow service members always had their six. Now that they're home, it is our turn. We started the Bob Woodruff Foundation to make sure that the camaraderie and support they relied on in the military carries on, and we need you. Please join us as part of the Got Your Six initiative and help us be there for impacted veteran service members and their families. They've had our backs. It's time we have theirs. Learn more at gotyoursix.org. That's gotyoursix.org. Using the number six. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. 
Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and we've got several stories here in the world of agriculture worth updating and talking about. One of those that is hitting close to home for a lot of listeners through the central part of our listening audience are pipelines, carbon pipelines. This past week saw surveyors start moving across the state of South Dakota, and there has been some shock at the size of the survey equipment and what all it is taking to get these apparently legal surveys done on the ground in South Dakota. Uh, farmers have seen uh, equipment pull up on their farms and ranches protected by armed guards and, and sheriff's offices, and it is creating uh, some, some tension on the ground, to put it mildly. On tomorrow's AOA, we're going to dig into what is happening there in South Dakota. Dominic Thausch, a porter from the, uh, the Argus Leader in Sioux Falls, will be joining us. He's been visiting with several of the growers that have seen this impact recently. So tune in tomorrow. These carbon pipelines, folks, we are going to hear a lot more headlines about them through the Midwest as we get deeper into summer and their plays for eminent domain push ahead in different states. So do be sure to tune in tomorrow. We'll keep that story uh, top of mind here as we see what is happening there across those states. We've also got news in the world of livestock. Two big stories have broken in the past day, truly. One, about Proposition 12. We talked about the Supreme Court ruling just about a month ago that allowed California's rules on what meat can be sold within their state lines was upheld at the Supreme Court level. Uh, that caused the pork industry to scramble, try and comply with their July 1st date to ban that meat that is not raised in ways that uh, California bureaucrats deem appropriate. And we learned yesterday that that Prop 12 has been delayed in California. July 1 was the expected start date for enforcement of that law. A Sacramento County judge yesterday it blocked enforcement for six months. So now the deadline will be December 31st, 2023. Of course, January 1, 2024 now is the effective date for Proposition 12 in California. As we've spoken with so many folks throughout the hog industry, that is a group that is still waiting to see how this market will look once they integrate all of the changes required here in Proposition 12. So, that's California for you. Well, California has other news. California is going to be the first place in the United States where cultured meat can be grown. On Wednesday, two companies announced they had received approval from the USDA to sell lab-grown meat. Now, it's worth remembering that USDA had already granted approval to several companies to research and experiment with cell-cultured meat in this country. These are the first two cases of approval to sell that cell cultured meat. Now, these two companies, Upside Foods and Good Meat, both are creating cell cultured chicken. And they describe it as, uh, as uh, they say, this is chicken, which is, quote, derived from a sample of cells that are fed and grown in steel vats. And that's what they're calling chicken. And they are saying that these two are the first companies to complete the multi-step approval process for cultivated meat, and they are going to be allowed to sell it. Now, Upside Foods chicken will be sold in Bar Cren, a restaurant in San Francisco. And Good Meat is going to sell their first batch of cultured chicken to the Jose Andres Group, uh, which is a, a group of restaurants owned by Jose Andres, a chef and a humanitarian, in fact. So that is where they are going to see these products come come to market first. Both companies say they do not have a timeline for when those products will hit the plate. And importantly, I have not been able to find any expected prices for what that cultured chicken is going to run there at Bar Cren in San Francisco. I'll keep looking at it. I can't imagine it's going to be the same as a conventionally raised chicken breast, but I guess we'll see. Looking out around the world, we've got an update to a story that Tommy Grizafi mentioned earlier in today's program. We were talking about the wheat market, and Mike Zuzalo highlighted the struggles that the wheat uh, crop in Europe is going through right now. They're in the midst of a drought. John Brannick spoke about it on Monday here on the program. It's bad. It's not catastrophic. But there is wheat in trouble elsewhere. India in fact, is going to be their harvest for this year is expected to be about 10% lower than the earlier government estimate. Now, this was coming out yesterday. Reuters reported that uh, here over the past two months, 
wheat prices on the ground in India have been skyrocketing, leading the government to believe they probably had overestimated the amount of wheat in stocks around the country. And the uh, the market uh, experts say that, quote, availability of wheat is very poor in the market. It suggests production was around 100 to 103 miller, million tons. Uh, that's from the president of the Roller Flour Mills Association. And it's believed this is going to cause India to have to step out into the global market to secure more wheat could see some additional buying coming into that global wheat market global trading also under discussion down in south america there has been a very long-running trade agreement proposal between the european union and mercosur the block of southern south american countries it's argentina brazil paraguay and uruguay back in 2019 they finalized negotiations on a trade deal but Europe has not approved it. Now, the Europeans tell the Brazilians it's because they uh, they have concerns about Amazon deforestation and they're not sure about Brazil's commitment to climate change. But President Ignacio Lula da Silva says the problem truly in Europe is that they are too protectionist and they are working to protect their domestic markets. It's interesting because that's a line of argument that is frequently bought out by American agricultural trade experts when they're trying to have conversations in the European Union. And for a long time, America American experts were the only ones really calling for the Europeans to open up and stop being so protectionist of their domestic industries. Now that Brazil has joined the four, we're hearing President Ignacio Lula da Silva say, nope, the U.S. is right. We need to see Europe be more willing to trade with their partners around the globe if they want to see these trade agreements come through. Lula said the Mercosur bloc was preparing its response, and he's hoping these EU countries will be, quote, more sensitive and humble. That is a big ask for folks in government, but we'll see if Lula can get anything like that accomplished. On tomorrow's program, we'll be covering a lot more issues here that have been impacting agriculture. One of the long-running runs is country of origin labeling. The Canadian, Canadian government has concerns about Americans' voluntary property of the U.S. labeling. We'll discuss that on tomorrow's program and see just what it means for U.S. pork producers. Thanks for listening, everybody. Tune in tomorrow for more AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Non-attorney paid spokesperson. Could your house go into foreclosure? Are you behind on your mortgage payments? Does it seem like the bank has no interest in helping you save your home and you feel like you have nowhere to turn for help? Then we have good news for you. Foreclosure protection services can help save your home as they specialize in foreclosure assistance. That's all they do. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, being threatened with foreclosure, have been denied a loan modification, or been the victim of a predatory loan, it's critical that you call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. Their network of attorneys and their agents are available to speak to you now. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, Foreclosure Protection Services can help stop the foreclosure process. Call today before it's too late. New laws are in effect that may save your home. Call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. 800-926-1701. That's 800-926-1701. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration. Retinitis pigmentosa. Usher syndrome. And the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We, we win. win. We, 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 we are, are the, the foundation, foundation fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org.